Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to what is our last edition of our live devotions for the year. Here we are on December 21st, and we will not be doing any more because our Bible reading plan actually concludes this week. Um, we're on our last five days of our F260 Bible reading plan, and it just so happens that we are in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Um, and uh, I don't know if you've read Revelation before, but sometimes it leads us to all sorts of, uh, maybe we could, there's probably two things we could do when we approach the book of Revelation. One is we're too intimidated to ever read it, and we neglect the great hope that God has in it. Or two, we are um, excited to read it for reasons that are not necessarily the reasons that God gave us the book of Revelation. And so there's um, some questions we could ask ourselves as to, to how is it that we read a book that is both prophetic looking forward and at times apocalyptic and apocalyptic literature is was is is a little abnormal for us today um, but during the times of the biblical writers both in the old testament and in the new testament apocalyptic literature um, was very common and people were better at reading it then than now because they understood um, the symbolism and what was trying to be accomplished. There's lots of word pictures. There's lots of um, metaphors uh, that are meant to inflame our imagination um, to help give us a sense uh, of the weight that is to come. And so we're going to discuss some of those things. How is it that we're going to read Revelation as we continue through this? How is it that we uh, devotionally pull things out of this book as we continue um, to read it. And in Revelation chapter one, we're really kind of reading the prologue, the introduction to Revelation. And the first three chapters of Revelation um, are kind of this cohesive unit. And then you get into another um, section beginning in chapter four, and then it concludes with kind of these, these greater prophecies concerning the day of the Lord that comes later on in the book. And in these first three chapters, as we'll see, if you've read Revelation one already, is that John is recording this revelation from God for the seven churches. And what are the seven churches? Well, there are seven churches in Asia near where John is um, currently exiled. We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, there's nothing special about these seven churches except for the fact that John wanted them to have this letter. And they're listed probably in order that the letter would be circulated by a messenger that went through this area. Um, but it's also, in looking at this, it's meant to, these seven churches are seven specific historic churches, uh, but it's also intended, you could tell at various points in this book, to be written to the whole church. This is our letter as well. Um, and so we are going to look at Revelation chapter 1, where we're kind of getting that introduction to the letter, to who is speaking, to, to the context of John's life uh, in, uh, sorry, brain fart. It's Monday morning. It's early. Uh, we're going to look at the introduction, which includes the context, who is speaking, um, and what is going to follow in Revelation chapter one. And we're going to do so by asking ourselves uh, to look three places, to look up. What does this text teach us about God, the gospel, Jesus, the Trinity, redemption? Look in. What does this teach us about ourselves, our own hearts, the hearts of our neighbors and our community? And lastly, looking out, how does this change the way that we live. So the first thing we're going to do in Revelation chapter one is we're going to look up and we're going to see two things. We're going to see the grace of God and we're going to see the glory of God. And we see the grace of God in two specific ways. First, in and both of them have to do with the context of what's going on. And the first is uh, John's location. And so this is John, the, the same John who wrote the gospel of John and first and second John, and he is uh, in exile. And we see this um, in verse eight, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God 
and the testimony of Jesus. And so John is in exile for the gospel. And he, so he is isolated. Um, he is isolated. So he's alone, but also alone because of the gospel. And what we see is what he's alluding to is there's all this kind of tribulation. He's partners in affliction with these churches. And so at the time when this book is being written, there's increasing social pressure. It's probably not imperial persecution from the top down, but social pressure from your neighbors, um, from whatever media outlets there were that day against Christianity. And the context of John is that um, he is alone for the sake of the gospel and being punished for the sake of the gospel. And what's interesting is, uh, this is just a little hope for us in 2020, is while he was alone and in exile, uh, it says in verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And that's when this uh, this revelation came to him. And I just thought it's so encouraging because here's John isolated from the, the greater church on the Lord's day, Sunday, um, and he's in the spirit and God blesses him. And I just think there's a, a practical hope for us in 2020 where many of us are still unable to come to church or our church life has been disrupted um, to where God is bigger. God has privileged the gathering of the church. And when it is available and you are able to go, Christians have an obligation to be there. But in times where it's disrupted by life events we can't control, God is still gracious to bless those saints on the Lord's Day who dedicate themselves to probably what John was doing here was prayer um, and, and contemplating on God's word. And for us, that looks like perhaps uh, streaming in with our service, reading the Bible that morning with your um, roommates or with your family. And I just thought that was really unique that here he is in exile, disrupted from the church, and yet God was blessing him on the Lord's day. And so too, do we have the promise of blessing in our disrupted life today? And so his location and his context is, is kind of uh, dour. It's not great. He's not sitting um, on a throne of luxury. He's in exile and alone and probably has these feelings of loneliness. But then secondly, in the midst of this isolation and this loneliness, we see God's purpose is that this letter would actually be read by more people than just John. There's innate hope in this, that John's role is not dead in exile, that John is still going to be able to bless others um, and step beyond his own circumstances. And we see this in verses one through three, where he says, uh, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and are blessed to hear and to keep what is written for the time is near. And so the goal of writing this is that it would be circulated. And in verse 19, Jesus says to John, write this down. In other words, this isn't just for John. This is for us. This is for the church. And this is God's grace that in the context where it seems like um, the hope for John and the hope for the church is bleak, God speaks this revelation of hope into the life of the church. And that's what revelation is. Revelation is a book of hope for the church. And secondly, we see the glory of God. And we see two things held up in tension with this glory. One is God's immense love for the church, and the other is God's intimate control over human history. And we see this in verse, uh, the last part of verse 5. It says, To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's God, the promise of God's love for us. He who loved us, who has freed us from sin by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God, his father. But then we see his control over history. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So there's these two amens, an amen in verse six and an amen in verse seven. One emphasizes God's immense love for his church and the other emphasizes God's immense control over history, where his church, even though John is in exile and the church is facing persecution, one day every knee will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, all the world will bemoan the weight of their sin, which put Christ on the cross. One day, everyone will stand either in salvation, covered by the blood of the Lamb, or condemned because they caused the blood of the Lamb to be spilled and remained unrepented. And so God is intimately in control here. In fact, if you look at... Um, verse uh, 12 through 16, we see who it is that is in control. Uh, John says this, he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a sun. And so actually, um, he's going to help us understand this later on where he says the lampstands um, are the churches. Uh, in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came two sharp-edged swords. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so here we have this picture of Jesus speaking to John. Jesus, radiant, resurrected, uh, face shining like the sun. Remember that scene in the tran uh, on the mountaintop where Jesus is transfigured and Peter, James, and John saw him. What a reunion this is for John to see Jesus like this. And we see this, his voice is is loud like waters. His clothes are white. His hairs are white like wool. His clothes are shining in full sun. And one thing we see here, which is really important for our context, is John is intentionally calling back some language that we see all the way in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Because here Jesus is introduced as the son of man. And there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 where Jesus will come as the son of man. And so we know this is Jesus, not only because it's going to become immensely clear as the book goes on, but he's using this title um, that was set up in Daniel that was Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospel of Mark. And here's Jesus as Daniel 7's Son of Man, radiant in glory. But then also, if you remember, um, so there's political and social upheaval during John's time right now. And people are wondering, if John's in exile, if the church is being threatened, what future do we have? And remember in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that he calls for Daniel to interpret. And in this dream, he sees this statue, and each aspect of the statue is made of a different material. And um, the head is, is uh, made of this precious, valuable material. But then it, it goes down, and as it goes down the body, you, see, you finally get to these feet. And these feet are mixed with iron and clay. And what does that mean? It means regardless of how beautiful the statue is, a, a footings of iron mixed with clay are not strong at all. It has bits of strength. It has iron, but it's not connected to anything. The clay is soft. The clay is fragile to the elements. And that, that statue, um, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and his rule will certainly crumble despite how beautiful it looks. And here we have this, um, perfect image of Christ where he is radiant from head to toe, but his feet, do you see what it says? His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. In other words, the foundation of Christ is no foundation of iron and clay. It is not fickle. It is not to be threatened. It is solid. It is refined. It is strong. The hope for the church is found in this person of Jesus, the foundation. Uh, I love the old hymn we sometimes sing at church. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here is our hope, the statue made of bronze and feet upon which we can hope in all circumstances that other kingdoms, though tall and and full of radiant glory are certainly founded on iron and clay, but the church is founded on this risen and ruling 
Jesus Christ. And this is our hope in the book of Revelation, that despite everything we don't know, we can look at the feet of bronze and the blood poured out for us and take certainty that this Jesus and this God is in control. And this is really the point, and, and this is where I want to begin to look in, because uh, this is Revelation we need. This is the first thing I want us to see in the, in Revelation chapter 1 is, is this is for us. This is that we might take heart. This is not a revelation for our newspapers or a revelation for our calendars or a revelation um, for uh, some people group that is not us. This is for us. This is for us to take hold of. Every Christian who has ever read this book, this is for you. This is the hope you need in uncertain times. And I love what happens in verse 8 where all of a sudden um, God begins to speak. And he said, and this comes after the amen and the amen. He loves us. Amen. He is in control. Amen. And then there's this voice that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, me and my children, we just finished reading um, Prince Caspian together. And one thing that Lewis does masterfully in his Narnia series is he uh, builds up to the introduction of Aslan in a way that's wonderful. And so in Prince Caspian, actually what's being debated in Prince Caspian, it's not so much the struggle between King Miraz and the Telmarines and the Narnians. It's the struggle inside of the Narnian community where Aslan has been gone for so long that the Narnians wonder if he even exists and if he even cares. And certainly we might have that same um, mentality. Perhaps John in these seven churches had that same mentality of does God even care? And in Caspian, you see these glimpses of Aslan, and then finally it builds up to where Aslan is seen, and Aslan speaks. He speaks first to Lucy, and then to the rest of uh, her siblings. And in just reading it uh, in the book, I became emotional. <laughs> uh, I tried to not cry in front of my children while I was reading it, but the point was, is like, this is basically three quarters of the way through the book. And in those first uh, three quarters, your heart is just longing for, for Aslan. Your heart is longing for someone with a plan and with the power to execute it. And here in Revelation, at the end of God's revealed word in scripture, we have the voice of Aslan that speaks with such great authority that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who, which is the beginning and the end, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so here, uh, Lewis's chief Aslan, God Almighty, speaks. And he says, I am the God who is in this present moment. I am the God who was in all moments past. And I am the God who is to come in all moments future. And he is speaking this to us so that we might have hope that Aslan has drawn near. That he has a plan that he shows up exactly when he needs to show up for the sake of his people. And all of this world is working beautifully towards his end for us, for him who loves us. And this is our revelation to take anything from this book apart from the God who was and is and is to come, who speaks to us, who is the beginning of all creation and the end of all creation, the Alpha and the Omega, all of the heralds uh, who could ever be it, all of the front men proclaiming the glory of who is to follow. Here he is speaking to us that we might have hope.
And I love this picture in Revelation chapter one. Guys, I was really excited for this. Uh, when I got up today and I saw it was just Revelation one for our reading, I was like, ah, this is gonna be difficult. But man, this caused my heart to sing. And maybe it's the, the summary of 2020 coming to, to bear and the hope that we often lack in our own circumstances. And it certainly is. But man, how good is God in this chapter? Because one thing that we see is we see the supremacy of God in almost every bit of Revelation chapter one. And what is so important to see is not only this is a revelation we need, but why do we need it? It's because we actually learn much of ourselves in encounters with glory. We learn much of ourselves in encounters with glory. You see our world right now is increasingly calling us to look inward into our own hearts and looking in is where we find the glory we need looking in is where we find the inner person and our inner desires and that gives us the motivation we need to understand ourselves and to understand our world and certainly christians should be introspective but the chief thing that motivates us generally is encounters on the outside isn't it think about it when we encounter someone greater or better than us it quickly becomes known to us either for better or for worse our own weaknesses and where we stand. When we encounter someone better than us at work, we know where they're better, which means we know where we're worse. When we encounter someone uh, who is not as good at us, uh, say you're teaching your son uh, how to throw a football and you're better than him, you encounter where you have strengths, where you didn't think you did. When we encounter something on the outside of us, it explains ourselves. And here we understand ourselves most clearly, not by looking at the glory of who we are, but by looking at the glory of who God is. And there in seeing who he is, we learn who we are not. In seeing who he is, we see who we are called to be in Jesus. And this is such a wonderful thing for us to see because sometimes um, we think in kind of romanticized ways about um, the glory of Jesus. And, and we should, because for every scene like Revelation 1, there's a scene like the father God coming to embrace the prodigal son. Um, and, and it is true that God has deep affection for us. But how glorious is this God? So here is John, who has seen Jesus, who was on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured. And here's what happens. This is right after we see Jesus with, you know, white hair like Santa Claus, burnished brown feet, voice like the roar of many waters. He's got swords. He's got stars. He's shining like the sun. And what happens? And you think of, um, uh, there's a song we used to sing. Maybe we still sing it, but, oh, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. And we have this scene of going to Jesus and just embracing him. But here John sees Jesus. And what does he do? Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> John knew Jesus. He saw Jesus transfigured. But when he saw Jesus in all of his glory like this, he fell dead. Why? Because he encountered a glory that made sense of him. He is nothing compared to this Jesus. He is as dead as compared to him who has risen from the grave. And yet, uh, it says, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. You see, it's only the God who, verse uh, 5, who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to God his Father. It's only that God who can both at once strike us dead with his glory and yet call us towards him without fear because he has beaten death for us. Because he himself has called us to stand before him, not clothed in who we are, but clothed in everything that he is. And this Jesus, this radiant, drop-dead, beautiful Jesus, 
is writing to give us hope in times of uncertainty in the book of Revelation. And so I just think of, man, how much I want to have both the, the prodigal son desire to run, but also the, the hand of Jesus that grasps on with his right hand to my weak frame and says, fear not, for I am the first and I am the last. I am the living and the dead. I've overcome the grave. What the good news, uh, what good news we have in the glory of Jesus that should shape us um, and drive our hopes. And so lastly, um, in looking out, uh, I want us to see two things is uh, when we read the book of Revelation, and as we continue in this, there, there's a tendency for those who are not intimidated by it, um, at least the vocal majority of those who are in the book of Revelation are trying to discern um, the times, trying to discern, you know, who is the eagle, who is the Antichrist, who are all these things. And the truth is, is that God hasn't given us to know this. And what God wants us to know and clear, clearly, um, he expresses to us. Like, there's no mystery. In Revelation 1, he says, so here's the deal. Um, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And so he's giving us a general sense of what he wants us to know. God didn't give us this riddle and just hope, like, oh, my goodness, I hope the church can figure this out because I really wrestled to voice this <laughs> to John. Um, God gave us exactly what he wanted us to know. And sometimes it's in God's providence to withhold some of the clear details to give us the mental picture and weight of what it is that's going to happen. And so as we read this, um, I think it is wise in some degree to look out, um, but we're not going to come to a different conclusion because here we see uh, that in Revelation chapter one, John is already saying this stuff is happening soon. And so the best case scenario is we look out right now and say, hey, this is happening soon, but that's, it's been happening soon for thousands of years. Um, and that's not because God has forgotten. First Peter tells us that God has not forgotten, but a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. Um, it's happening exactly how God wants it to happen. But the biggest thing when we read the book of Revelation is we need to fight a tendency to establish a day and instead discover God's desire to establish our hearts. God gives us these books. God gives us these foretastes into heaven, not so that we can sit back and discover a day, but that we might, by God's grace, establish our hearts to be ready for whenever that day is. Because um, here we see the, the goal in verse three is blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. God's goal in the book of Revelation is that we would live in light of this hope that we would live lives that honor God. And we're going to see what that looks like. These seven churches are going to kind of give us in chapters two and three um, little places where we can identify the hope of Christ's coming and live in light of that in practical ways. But that's the first thing I want to see is that when we read this book, we need to fight the tendency to establish a day and instead realize God's goal to establish our hearts in holiness, endurance, and faithfulness. And then secondly, one thing that I thought was really unique, and I touched on this earlier, is John is in complete exile. The churches are wondering what hope they have. But look at this um, unique hope that is given again in verses 5 and 6. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God, to God priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so here we see this uh, fourfold benefit to us. Uh, Jesus loves us. 
That's the first thing he wants us to know. Jesus then has, because he loves us, he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus' love is not cheap. It is intense and it demands his blood. Secondly, he has made us a kingdom. To those who feel in our political turmoil in 2020 or in the political turmoil of the first century, to those who feel they have no um, economic or social standing, we are part of a kingdom by God's love and sacrifice. But then lastly, what else has he made us? Priests to his God and Father. And now think about this. Here is John. Here are the churches in isolation, fearful, wondering what role God would have for them. And here he reminds them that as a sign of their redemption, they have been made priests. They have been given everything they need to care for others and to serve God. Here's John in isolation, cut off for the sake of the gospel, and yet he is not done um, in God's plan. God gives him a way, even in isolation, to fulfill his duty of the priesthood of believers, of helping others encounter God, and of serving God. And it's easy in our disrupted life right now to think that that priest title has been removed from us. Yes, we are loved. Yes, we are redeemed. Yes, we are part of a kingdom. But are we priests? Do we have the idea to think that even in tumultuous times, that God has still given us everything we need in our redemption to serve others and bring them to God and to serve God and to give him glory? Now, just like it is with John, it looks different. John here is receiving a direct revelation from God, which we won't experience in our Lord's day in isolation. Um, but John is writing and he can't go places, but his words can. And so he is thinking entrepreneurially about what it means to be a priest, to help others encounter God and to serve God so that God might have glory. And I think for us, when we see this hope, um, what we see first is that we ought not draw back. I think of the author of Hebrews where he says, we are not of those who shrink back and destroy, but we are of those who stand firm and endure. Despite what we see culturally, despite what we see shifting in America or across the globe or with COVID or whatever it is, we have great hope. And because of that hope, we move towards each other and we move towards the lost as priests um, saved by grace in Jesus Christ. And so what does it look like for you to be a priest today? To be a priest in a Revelation 1 context of feeling in exile, of feeling lonely, of feeling um, isolated for the sake of the gospel perhaps, but to be one who does not let the external confines suppress the internal identity that is given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't know what that looks like, but we're moving into the Christmas season, and I hope that we together um, can figure out what it looks like to, to live out this hope and this this priesthood of believers in a way that is made known to our family, our friends, our coworkers, and our city, because we are those loved, freed, given a kingdom and made priests to God by the glory of Jesus Christ. And we have a hope of a King with bronze feet whose kingdom will never end. And this Christmas season, as we celebrate Advent, we are reminded of that now more than ever. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the grace you give us in your gospel. I thank you for a king with bronze feet, a kingdom that will not um, crumble, a foundation which will not teeter, and a hope that will endure through all that will come. Lord, I pray that as we continue reading the book of Revelation, we will not only hear it, but we will keep it. We will apply it to our hearts so that we might faithfully endure and serve. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
Uh, amen. Like I said, this is our last one for the year. We're uncertain at this point if we're going to keep this Monday morning devotional in this context in 2021. But what I do know is that we are actually going to have a Bible reading plan that we are going to do together. And you could visit SovereignHope.Church um, to see that plan. It's actually uh, joined up with the Bible Project, which you guys might be familiar with. It's a great um, organization out of Oregon that puts out videos and resources for reading the Bible. They have an app called Read Scripture that we'll use. And this Bible reading plan actually brings us through the whole Bible in a year, where the F260 plan had us reading in every book, but not the whole Bible. Um, this has us reading through the whole Bible in a year. And so we're excited to do that. We are still going to have our Wednesday um, uh, Google Hangouts for our Bible reading group. And uh, we're excited for that. So please join us in that. I uh, love you guys. Hope you guys have a good Christmas and New Year. And we will see you hopefully uh, later. <laughs>